you would join me in turning with me to the copy of the scriptures from the 22nd chapter of Matthew. We will continue our consideration of the Word of God and the message that He would have for us as people. In our context, in our country, in our lives, our personal lives, but in the context of this passage, beginning at verse 15 through verse 22, Matthew 22, 15 through verse 22, hear the word of the Lord. The Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know you are true, and teach the way of God in truth. Nor do you care about anyone, for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, Why do you test me, you hypocrite? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, Render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard these words, they marveled, and they left him and went their way. It is my prayer that God will open our eyes and our hearts with understanding. For this text will strike at the cord of many of our presuppositions. And I would ask the Lord to just give us ears to hear what he would have for us without importing a lot of our our preconceived notions upon it. And so let's ask God for the liberty to be able to hear this and hear his voice today and the message that he would have for us, acknowledging that Jesus is king. Our gracious Father in heaven, the text before us is packed with uh, many subtleties that strike at the heart of so much of where we live today in this nation, so much of where your people live, no matter what nation they are in, in this world. And so we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. There are so many other ideas and thoughts that will likely enter into our mind, but we ask that our hearts would just be open and bare to this particular text this morning. And we pray that your Spirit would would work in our minds and hearts so that we could hear the voice of God. This is not a teaching time, though there are things to learn. This is the preaching, where preaching is worship. So be glorified in our hearing, be glorified in the delivery, be glorified in the, the, the message preached. And receive our worship this day in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Jesus, when he came, he came as the king, the long-awaited Messiah. And he said to the people to whom he ministered to as well as to us, that you're either for him or you're against him. There is no middle ground. 
The fallen man has a natural bent already that he's born with against God and the things of God and the ways of God and the thinking of God. And a man must be born again to enter into the kingdom of God. And that new birth changes something about us completely. It changes our heart from which all of the issues of life spring. It changes our perspective. It changes our outlook on life. It changes how we relate to others. It changes how we think about God. And when the Spirit of God does a work in our life and changing our hearts, we come into an entirely new world. A new way of thinking. A new way of living. A new way of being human. But if that work of God's grace is not done in our hearts, we're still, we're still not only in this world, but we are still of this world. There is no middle ground. You're either for Christ or you're against Christ. You're either for God or you're against God. A true disciple of Jesus Christ is one who has denied himself and he has picked up his cross, and he, has, he is following the Lord Jesus Christ. And to follow Jesus means to live your life in the character that he taught us in his word. This has been delineated out in several lists, none of which were exhaustive, but expressive. The, the Beatitudes, for instance, in Matthew 5, the, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, the character of love in 1 Corinthians 13, and, and on it goes. This is the revelation of God. And in the history of the church, there have been many imposters and hypocrites in the church. Many tares among the wheat, if you will. Many who play the role of a Christian but have not had their lives given over to Christ or the character of the kingdom inbred in their lives through the regeneration of the Spirit of God. And those are the ones who will oppose the very things of the church and His people from within the church and among His people. And that is what's going on this morning in this text. After Jesus enters into Jerusalem announcing Himself as Israel's long-awaited Messiah, in the holiest week on their calendar year, He comes as the Son of David. He comes with a proven lineage. He comes announcing that He is their King. And the kingdom of God is upon them. And yet the common theme that you will see throughout this entire week of Passion Week, the week that we're in in the Scriptures, not the week that we're in in the ca our own calendar time, but the common theme is rejection. They rejected Christ Himself, they rejected His person, they rejected His claim, and they rejected His authority. And at this point, the religious leaders of the nation of Israel had become so jealous and so incensed with Jesus that they were looking for any excuse they could to justify 
his execution. Our present passage is in the context of these Jewish leaders attempting to trick Jesus and to ensnare him so that they might have a reason to kill him and yet be justifiable in doing so among the population of the people that they needed to appease. And we have here a series of three questions that they're going to ask to trip him up. And we're going to look at one, the first of those three questions, this morning. And so the passage can be broken down very simply in terms of the question that they come asking, the answer he gives, and then their response to the question. But as we consider the question before us, the larger issue is not about taxes, But it's about Jesus' authority. It's about His kingdom. It's about the nature of His kingdom. So let's consider first of all this question with this malicious intent beginning at verse 15. The Pharisees went and they plotted how they might entangle Jesus in His own talk. We have the Pharisees gathering together with, in verse 16, and they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians. And so the Pharisees and the Herodians go in league together to trap Jesus in his words. And the question is not being given with a genuine and pure motive, as we see, but it was in order to trap him. The Pharisees had such a hatred of Jesus that sprung from pride and jealousy that they attempted in any way they could to fabricate how they could trap him in his own words to justify killing him before the masses. What is ironic here is in verse 16, it says that they recruited some of the Herodians to join in league with them in order to form this collective trap. I think it's helpful if we back up a little bit and consider this context of who really are these Pharisees and who are these Herodians, because I I think when you see these two coming together, it will help us to unpack the passage a bit more. The Pharisees were the leaders or the, the spiritual leaders of the nation of Israel, the Jews, They emerged along with the Sadducees and the Essenes during the intertestamental period, the time after the Old Testament had been closed, and before the time that Matthew began his gospel, or the time in which Jesus was born, I should say. So during this time, this 400 years of of silence of God's revelation, we have what we would referred to as this intertestamental period. And it's during this time that the Pharisees emerged as as part of the religious sect within the nation of Israel. And as I describe the rise of the Pharisees, we don't have to look very hard to find modern parallels to some of their characteristics. The Pharisees, the word means separate, separate to be separate from. And they represented the orthodox and the, and the somewhat stiff formalism of Judaism. They had the most influence with the people, and they somewhat controlled the public worship of the Jews. 
And it was during the rise of the Pharisees that the oral traditions emerged. To adapt to the ever-changing environment in which the Jews lived, the oral law was established. And the written law, which was considered the Torah, the Torah specifically, the, the Pentateuch, or the first five books of our Old Testament, they also embraced. But this was a written law, and yet it, it was fixed, it was unchangeable. And the, some of the Jews felt that it was hard to apply the Torah in the cosmopolitan world in which the Jews had found themselves in the intertestamental period and into the New Testament time. So some of the rabbis taught that God had given not only a written law at Mount Sinai with to Moses, but also an oral tradition or this oral law. And so the oral law formed the majority of what we know of as the Talmud. And that document or that tradition is what began to come along with the rise of the Pharisees prior to the birth of Christ. The Torah was the written law. The oral law was its commentary, which often then applied the written law in ways of our common environment or culture, or the Jews. What was at the heart of the Pharisaic enterprise was the desire to make the law relevant to the new age in which they lived. Josephus describes them with tremendous influence upon the population, the ability to sway the masses, even against the kings and the high priest. A very powerful group. Now, at the time, the temple was becoming more and more removed from the private life of the Jew. It was becoming more aristocratic, more uh, political, and more hierarchical. And due to the distance that many Jews lived in the dispersion and spread around all of the region, Jerusalem was not as approachable for many. And so you had these Jewish centers known as the synagogues that would crop up all over the synagogue. And the Pharisees were rulers of the synagogues and of the populace. So there was a shift taking place away from the priestly toward the popular popular. The Pharisaic movement was the first step in democratizing Judaism. The Pharisees were very nationalistic in their Judaic worldview. Their focus was on the very kinds of matters that they bring before Jesus in this question, discussing matters of the law and applying them to the issues of state and religion in their particular context in which they lived. So they would come up with rulings that the people would then be bound by. Constantly interpreting the laws of God with their oral traditions, which become the commandments of men. The Pharisees were the party of the synagogue. We'll learn about the Sadducees very shortly. The Sadducees were the party of the temple. But the Pharisees were with the population that was dispersed, and they were the party of the synagogue. They derived a lot of their power from the interpretation of Scripture. And so they come here with, to Jesus, 
with this loaded question in order to lead him to a trap in his own words of what he would then say. Well, here we have next the Herodians, which had leagued together with the Pharisees on this particular occasion. This is very ironic and very unusual. What is ironic here is they leagued together because these two were at hatred with one another, with just great animosity with one another. The Herodians get their name from the the followers and supporters of the Herodian dynasty that began under Herod the Great. In your New Testament, we have a number of Herods that are mentioned. And to get all these Herods straight, you have to do a little bit of, of study on these Herods. The Herodian dynasty began with Herod the Great, who was a usurper. He did not have a rightful place on the throne of Judea or Judah, Because he was not of the lineage of David, he was a usurper of the throne. And when he died, he left the kingdom into the hands of his three sons. Now this was all the while under the imperial Roman government, but in the region of Judea. The three sons that he left his kingdom to were Archelaus... Antipas, and that was the one that, that was the Herod, Antipas, that John the Baptist confronted about having his brother Philip's wife and that who arrested John and eventually beheaded John. And the third Herod was Philip. So those are your three Herods that Scripture identifies. And the Herodian dynasty had gained favor and, and even power with and under the Roman imperial government. And because of this, the Pharisees and many of the Jews looked at the Herodian supporters, the Herodians, as traitors. And that's why the coming together of those two is quite remarkable. Their hatred for one another was only superseded by their hatred of Jesus. Verse 16, they approach Jesus with this question, but they approach him with this preface of flattery. Teacher, we know that you are true. You teach the ways of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone. You do not regard the person of men. You are impartial. They are just, just caking it on with thick sweetness and all of this icing with such hypocritical nature of words that they don't believe anything that they just said. But what they are doing with flattery is to try to appeal to the pride of a man in order to leverage him into their trap. Men like the Herodians and men like the Pharisees who were so filled with pride would certainly be succumbed to that kind of thing because Flattery appeals to the pride, and so they are then projecting their own autobiography upon Jesus, thinking that that would work as well. But Jesus saw right through that. Does he not? Does he not always just see right through every intent of our hearts? 
You know, we don't even know our own hearts. The Scripture tells us that our hearts are desperately wicked. They're sick above all things. Who can know it? We can't even know our own heart. You know, that, that's a warning to us not to trust ourselves. Don't trust your heart. That's why we need community in, in Christ. That's why we need the Spirit of God. That's why we need the Word of God. Don't trust your heart. And then they come to the question, verse 17. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? That's been a question that Christians have argued ever since, is it not? The question here had to do with paying a poll tax. Let's learn a little bit about that because I believe it brings in the gravity and the difficulty of the situation than merely paying taxes. The Romans at the time imposed three types of tax upon its people. Number one was the land tax. A land tax was given for those who owned property. And it, what, what they taxed was 10% of the proceeds that would come from any of the grains that would be uh, harvested and sold. And 20% of any of the wine or oil of the proceeds from the land that was harvested and sold. That was the land tax. If you own land, you got a tax to pay. In addition to that, there was the income tax. Everybody paid the income tax, and that was 1% of one's increase. Ooh, pretty, pretty steep, wasn't it? <laughs> uh, it actually was a pretty heavy levy upon all of the people in that day, um, relatively so. But the third was a poll tax. Now, the poll tax was only relevant to the Jews. A poll tax has to do with the numbering or the registering of people. That's what the word poll means. And the poll tax was imposed upon the Jews who lived in the region of Judea. And this occurrence came because Herod had left a part of his kingdom to one of his sons, Archelaus, who had mismanaged it drastically. And then in 6 AD, the Roman government comes and takes it back over. And the Romans then take the government of that section back over and then give it to men like Pontius Pilate and governors like that. And then they want to pay for it. In order to pay for that, they impose a poll tax on all of the Jews. Now they charged every one of the Jews who were a male from the ages of 14 to 65 and every woman from the age of 12 to 65. And when a Jew paid that poll tax, he felt that he was essentially saying by that payment that he was acknowledging that Caesar and the Roman government was his head. That was pretty emotionally and spiritually loaded for a Jew. This was fiercely resented by the Judeans. 
When it was first imposed in 6 AD, there was a man by the name of Judas, not the betrayer of Jesus, but a, another man. He aroused an insurrection, which eventually was put down. But from that insurrection, the zealot movement arose, and it grew. And that movement, within 35 years, would be the cause of a great eruption in 66 AD, and at the end of which would be the total destruction of the temple in Jerusalem in A.D. 70. This was a highly volatile and an explosive issue that was being brought to Jesus. Jesus is being asked, whose side are you on? By two opposing groups of conspirators in order to trap him. If Jesus responds, no, this tax is unlawful, then the Herodian party can report him to the Romans and accuse him of sedition to the government. If he responds, yes, it's lawful, then the Pharisees can denounce him as unpatriotic and undermine the populist support he has among the crowds. He literally is on the horns of a dilemma. So they're attempting to put him in a position that he can't get out of, and whatever he answers will be a self-condemning answer. And for our purposes, it's important to get the question clarified. So let's talk a little bit about this taxation. Let's leave for a moment the larger issue of Jesus' authority, but let's not leave it too long. Because that is the issue. The issue is who Jesus is and his authority as the great king. But we're going to have to move away just a moment to address the, the import of the question around taxes and have to get down to something that is a burning question, not only in the minds of the Jews at that time, but also a burning question in the minds of many of you. And it may become a burning question even more so in the foreseeable future as United States citizens. Taxes. Not a very pleasant subject, is it? <laughs> I can't tell if that was an amen or... A <laughs> that was an amen, no it's not, that's right. <laughs> Taxes. When the Pharisees and the Herodians are asking, they are not asking about the legality of a government taxing its people. That's not what they're asking. That's not what they're bringing forward if a government can tax the people. That's not the issue. They're not even asking about the fairness of taxes or the percentage of taxes or where it becomes theft or not. The question is one of religious lawfulness in paying this tax. It's a question where religion and conscience get wrapped up into the mixation, the, the mixing of paying your taxes because for a Jew, this would have been acknowledging that the Roman government is its head. 
It's wrapped up with their theocratic understanding of the kingdom. See, the nation of Israel was a theocracy where the state and the civil and the religious jurisdictions were brought together and united. There were distinguishing factors with those jurisdictions, but they were united under a theocracy. And to tax a Jew, this poll tax for him to pay, it was to make a religious statement in his mind, and it would be analogous to the question today, let me ask you, let's back out for just a moment, is it lawful for the U.S. government to tax you on being a Christian living here in the United States? How would you respond to that? Is it lawful? That's, that's the question. But probably even with deeper teeth and with a greater force of bite to the Jew. And this is where religion gets mixed into taxation. Taxation happens to be the one particular topic. It could get mixed in with all kinds of topics when it has to do with the state. But this is the one that's brought before him at the moment. And that's what makes this issue so sensitive. Is that what these people were thinking is that when they paid this tax, they believed they were acknowledging subjection of God's people to a pagan head. Now let's look at Jesus' answer. In verse 18, Jesus perceived their wickedness and says, Why do you test me, you hypocrites? In other words, your, your question is not sincere. You are not bowing your knee to my authority. You don't acknowledge me as Lord. And you didn't believe what you just told me regarding truth. Then he says, verse 19, show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius. The coin which was referred to as a denarius was a very offensive thing for a Jew. Because this is what he used to pay the poll tax with. Now, I don't know if you have ever been religiously offended by taking out one of your coins and looking at it. Have you ever been incensed by looking at a coin? <laughs> well, I haven't, and that was really what the Jew was feeling. In the ancient world, when a king came to power, one of the ways that he asserted his sovereignty was to strike new coinage. This particular coin had the head of Tiberius Caesar on it, on one side. This particular coin, a denarius, was struck between 14 A.D. and 37 A.D. I had an opportunity to buy one of these coins when I was in Italy at an antique market, the largest and the longest standing antique market of its kind, and there was one vendor. All he was doing is selling Roman coins, and I found one there that was A.D. 30, which was this. An opportunity to buy it for 50 bucks, and I turned it down. Didn't know if it was authentic. I couldn't speak a word of Italian. I couldn't ask it. So I, I passed it up at the time, and I have regretted it ever since. But perhaps maybe I needed to be offended with that as well. 
The Roman denarius had a profile of Tiberius on one side of it. And it was surrounded by the words around his head. You see a profile of his picture. You can actually go online and find these very coins. What is nice about these coins is that they were the most, uh, one of the most minted coins in ancient Roman government. So they're very common. Uh, they're not hard to find. Uh, when you can find them, and one in pristine condition can be expensive, but they don't all have to be. But you're going to see this, the side profile of Tiberius Caesar on it with the inscription written around it, Tiberius Caesar Augustus, son of divine Augustus. Tiberius was his first name. He was the son-in-law of, of the, uh, Augustus of Octavian, and his, the name Caesar was the family name that goes all the way back to Julius Caesar. Augustus was an honorific title, meaning awe-inspiring or revered. He was the son of the divine Augustus, the inscription says. This referred to Octavian, which was the first Caesar uh, to come into Roman imperial power. He was, the, he was really the stepfather of Tiberius. Both of these men are mentioned in Luke's Gospel. On the reverse side of the coin, we have a female uh, who, there is a little debate upon who that female is, but the strongest evidence seems to be the god of Pax, which is the, the word that means peace, the god of peace. Holding an olive branch in the world, wording of Pontificus, or Pon. Pontificus Maximus, written on the flip side of the coin. And that word, Pontificus, Pontificus Maximus, is the word chief high priest. It is this claim that Tiberius Caesar is the chief priest of the state of Rome, of this particular dominion. See, this is loaded. This is the coin that the Jews had to pay their poll tax with. The question is, is it lawful? Am I acknowledging Caesar as my, my head? Caesar as my king? Caesar as my chief priest? To a Jew living in that day? What is interesting is, Jesus doesn't have a coin like that. From the text, he says, bring me the coin. And the Lord brings their attention to the image and the inscription on the coin itself. And he gives them the answer in verse 21. Verse 20, he says, whose image and inscription is this? And they answer, verse 21, Caesar's. And then he says, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And when they heard that, they didn't know, they didn't know how to take it. When they, they marveled at his answer and they, they left. They didn't get him. They didn't trap him. But I think many of that day and even many of this day did not understand really what his answer meant. 
The answer sounds like the very kind of thing that is the question. What is Caesar's? And what is God's? The answer is to give to each one their due. But actually our Lord is not responding that way. You could take it that way, as though he's being somewhat evasive, but that isn't really what's going on. What the Lord is doing is he's going to give a general principle, and he's actually going to give a ruling on this very question, which I believe has been grossly misunderstood by his contemporaries at the time and even up to this day. He's given a general principle, and the general principle, first of all, is that our Lord is distinguishing two worlds. Two completely different worlds. Two spheres of sovereignty and dominion, but with clarity on something. He's getting at the heart of the nature of the kingdom. And when people try to sort out what is the relationship of these two spheres, they come up with varying models, different models. We probably have a number of different models even among us in this congregation. And sometimes it brings a lot of confusion. The Jews were confused about the nature of God's kingdom in their day, in Jesus' day. And many Christians have been confused about the nature of God's kingdom right up to today. It's, it's, it's still quite an emotive topic. And I will be the first to admit there are some complexities in harmonizing these two worlds But that Jesus has been claiming for his entire earthly ministry, he is the great king. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. I am the king. John the Baptist came preaching this, and he looks at Jesus and points, that's the king. There he is. Follow him. The kingdom of God is here in the presence of the king himself. The nature of the kingdom of God concerns itself with every injustice here upon the earth. Yes, it concerns itself even with what the Jews were concerned about in their injustices of oppression. Yes, but it is so, so much more than that. Vastly more. The kingdom of God is ultimately about what glorifies God. It is really His rule and sovereignty over everything by the right that He has as creator of it all. It is His sphere of dominion over every square inch of this earth from the beginning of time to the end of time and every time in between. Jesus would put it this way in his first epistle. For whatever is born of God, that brings us back to the introduction about regeneration. Whoever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Or when Jesus would say, the kingdom of God is near you, it is in you. 
When Jesus is confronting the question on the poll tax, He's going to answer in terms of two realms of living, two different worlds. And to provide a little backdrop of that, consider with me over the history of Israel very briefly. When God led the Hebrews out of Egypt, He established them as a theocracy in Exodus 19-24, through which we look at as the Mosaic Covenant. It is a covenant that God establishes then for the first time, His people in terms of a commonwealth and a nation. They become a theocracy and they are promised and given a land. A land that's got distinct borders on it which were delineated in the Scriptures. It was religious in nature, the priesthood. It was national in its, in its structure because it had government that would include a king. And as we consider the nature of God's kingdom, it's at the very heart of the issue here, and it's at the very heart of where we live here. I want to consider just briefly a couple of passages, one of which we referred to earlier as we read from Daniel chapter 5. Consider with me Daniel 5, and we don't have to turn back there. But what is significant about Daniel is we're dropping this theocratic Israel right into Babylon because of the exile, removed from the promised land. We have God's theocratic nation, and we have Babylon, Babylon, who is the first of four Gentile nations and kings that would then have dominion over them. From which the fourth the Roman government, which brings us fast forward to where we are in this poll tax context, would then stem. The first of those Gentile kingdoms that Daniel had an image for would be the Babylonian kingdom. We read that his son and Nebuchadnezzar's son would then would have Belshazzar, would have the kingdom taken from him, given to the Medes and the Persians. We read about Darius and Cyrus and these, and then all of a sudden we have the Greek Empire um, that would come under Alexandria the Great, and he would then uh, defeat the world and be kind of a, the, the, the Gentile reigning conqueror and dominion, and then the Roman government would then rise up and defeat the Greeks. Four kingdoms here, and then the everlasting kingdom, the Lord Jesus Christ would come, and his kingdom would be a different world. And when Jesus ministered, we observed the very context of these Jewish people that started at the theocracy of, of the Exodus, and now we're here under the Roman oppression when the question is approached. All under, right now, the subjection of these Gentile powers that God had prophesied to Daniel. How were they to relate to that? When Nebuchadnezzar, he had the wrong view of this. Nebuchadnezzar thinks he's in control. But God would inform him very clearly in a very undeniable manner that Nebuchadnezzar was thinking wrongly. Nebuchadnezzar was never in control. And so Daniel 4.25 says, God says, they're going to drive you from men and the dwelling will be of the beast of the field, and they will show they 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 will make you eat grass like the oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times will pass over you till you know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of men and gives it to whomever He chooses. And that was true way back in Daniel's day, and it was true in Moses' day, 
It was true all the way back. Always has been. God has always been over the nations. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't recognize this. Doesn't matter. It's still true. The subjection of Israel and and Nebuchadnezzar's mind seems to be evidence that Nebuchadnezzar is in control. That is not what's going on. His son Belshazzar, when God wrote on the wall, when he had this big feast, he tells him, you know, you, you saw what happened to your father and you ignored it. Now I'm going to show you what's going to happen to you. And you're going to lose your kingdom to the Medes and the Persians. And it happened. See, these Gentile kings had the wrong kind of model in their mind about God, His theocracy, and His kingdom. And the question for you today is, do you think Putin is in control of Russia? Do you think uh, Trudeau is in control of Canada? Do you think Biden is in control of the United States? Just get that out of your mind right now because the Lord Jesus is reigning. He is the King of the kings and the Lord of all who govern. But you got to believe that. Don't just amen it. Believe it. Give yourself to it and all of its implications. It's always what's been going on. Now fast forwarding past the time when Jesus is ministering with the question of the poll tax, we come to Paul's epistle in Romans, written about 20 years before the Roman Empire would destroy Jerusalem and the temple under Nero. And Paul writes in Romans 13, given to Christians in the very capital city of Rome, he says this, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you, not, do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject not only for wrath's sake, but for your conscience' sake. Paul is writing to the church of Rome in the context of a very corrupt, godless government that was domineering the world at the time. And every person, he says, is to be subject to the governing authorities. What at their time would be the Roman Caesars, which would in a very short time be Nero. But what if they were Marxist? What if they were socialist? What if they were communist? What if a, a democratic republic where everybody gets to vote were not the case for us? What if the Constitution doesn't read anything like the just laws we find in the Old Testament? What if there is nothing in the civil government that parallels the Judaic ethic of the theocracy of God that they had in a Christian society or even in the Old Testament society? How, how are we to think about that? Now, 
This is the way it works. There is no authority except from God. That's what you got to get your heart wrapped around. Every one of those authorities that exist, exists because of God. That's what you got to get your heart wrapped around. He's doing things well beyond the things that our eyes see upon the earth, and oftentimes which take a lot of our earthly focus. But he wants you to broaden this out a little bit this morning. And see, in a nation like ours, it's been a little easier to perhaps comply to these particular precepts. But it may be very difficult and hard to swallow if you are in another culture in another kingdom. But you know what? The words would still read the same. Would they not? Would, would they? Would they not read the same? That's what we have to see. There's no qualifications put to them. It doesn't say the authorities are from God as long as it does fill in the blank. It doesn't say that. Whoever resists those authorities resists God. You know, the, the ruler of that domain has the authority to do exactly what Daniel said to Nebuchadnezzar. Had the authority to, who, who he wanted to leave alive, he left alive. Who he wanted dead, he killed. To those he raised up, he wanted to raise up. To those he put down, he put down. There's some authority there. I'm not saying it's all righteously executed. But there's authority. Now, certainly there are some qualifications. And I'm not going to talk about qualifications. Because right now in your mind, you're thinking about all the qualifications. But what if? What if? What if? But what about this? What about that? What about that? And none of that. You know why? Because it's going to distract from the very simplicity of the message of God. And it will not be helpful to what we have to embrace here. And we have a very difficult time embracing this. If we take the Word of God from Romans 13 and, and 1 Peter, we need to be in subjection, not only for wrath's sake, but for our own conscience' sake. Conscience toward this truth of the sovereign rule of God over all the kingdoms of men. That's the conscience issue you need to have implanted in your spirit. And that's the consideration in verse 6 of Romans 13. When it also tells us there to pay our taxes to the rulers who are servants of God. Do the, do the servants who are unregenerate and unbelievers have to know that they are servants of Almighty God? No, they do not have to know it. But we know it because the Scripture tells us this. Therefore, our conscience is now involved. Not their conscience, our conscience. We have to have a conscience that is trained by the Scripture and is right before God with the truth. And this recognition of and this submission to God's kingdom here in the midst of other kingdoms requires faith. It requires a man to be born again. And when a man is born again, he enters into the kingdom of God. 
He's translated out of the kingdom of darkness here upon this earth. He's translated into the kingdom of light where we have forgiveness of sins. We have redemption and the kingdom of God is now in us. And while we still live in the world, we are not of this world. And that kingdom principle becomes a very important principle for how then we shall live. Faith is required. And that is not what the Pharisees had. They did not understand the nature of God's kingdom here. The general principle which Jesus was getting at is that we have to live for the kingdom of God here. And that requires faith to know how to live the kingdom of God while here in this earth. Faith is required to rightly interpret the Scriptures. Faith is required to rightly apply the Scriptures with the principles that are here. And now the specific ruling that Jesus is about to give them, He gave them a general principle, two worlds, two kingdoms. He's now about to give them a ruling. And the ruling is this. It is not a violation of conscience to pay Caesar what belongs to him. It's not wrong to pay your taxes. Getting back to the main point, however, which is the main thing, is that Jesus is the king. Jesus is the authority. This is his word which has given us the authority by which we have to now live in obedience to the gospel of God. You cannot live this practically without faith. You have to live it believing in his word. Yes, there are lots of questions that we may have this afternoon and throughout the days coming, but just embrace it first in the simplicity form of it and come into the kingdom of God and no matter what the government happens to be that He lands you in, there is something much greater that you have in this life to live by, and that is the kingdom of the rule of Jesus over all of the nations here. And you can bow His knee every Lord's Day, every morning and every evening, and you can live for the glory of God, submitting yourself to the ultimate authority which God Himself is. Jesus is Lord over all. You know, the main problems we have is we doubt it. We doubt it. We doubt that he is over the corruption that's going on in Canada, Australia, United States, different states, cities. Crime is going rampant. All of these governors who have denied the gospel, who have suppressed the truth in error, we doubt Jesus is in that place. We have such a short sight that we've not embraced the the holistic view of the gospel and the holistic view of what he's doing in advancing his kingdom here upon this earth. And so we get our eyes focused on what Fox News and, and the other media tells us and Facebook and all of the other news channels that gives us. Those are worldly news items. This is God's news item that is transcendent and it is truth and it will never change. And I can tell you the kingdom of God is growing here upon the earth and it will change the character of this entire globe. And glory is coming and righteousness is ruling. Do you believe it? 
The gospel is powerful to save. And without that redemption and the work of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit working in you, ain't no, nothing you can do that's going to change this earth for good. Nothing. No law you can change that's going to be efficacious without the regenerative work of the Spirit of God working in and through it. We don't want Josiah's kind of revivals. Oh, he was blessed, but as soon as he died, the nation went back. Yeah? You have to think about the kingdom of God in the right manner. It's a spiritual kingdom, and spiritual is not in contrast with the physical. It's not in contrast to what's going on here on the earth, but if you don't have the right perspective of religion and Christianity and the state and civil magistrate, we're going to make the exact same mistake the Pharisees made, and many Christians, I think, do. Let's just legislate a little bit more. Certainly legislation that is righteous does suppress evil, yes. But evil men making even righteous laws will eventually fail if we're not doing the work of the kingdom and discipling the nations with the truth. And that means regenerative work of bringing people to Christ, a saving knowledge of Christ. I hope your heart is given to this truth this morning. Jesus is King. Father in heaven, we thank you for the kingdom of God. And as you have expressed what the character of this kingdom looks like, there's a, a poverty of spirit. There's a mourning over sin. There's a meekness that overcomes us. There's a hunger and a thirst for righteousness, even a willing to be persecuted for righteousness' sake, where we can count it all joy. Where there is a character of being a peacemaker and seeking unity among all within the gospel, with the gospel and with the truth. Where there is love and joy and peace that abounds and where we suffer long with one another and there's kindness and gentleness and where there's self-control and faith. Lord, we ask that you would conform us to the image of Christ and the character of your kingdom today. That we would not challenge the authority of Jesus. That we would not test you. But we would believe that you are in control and that you are Lord of all. May we submit ourselves this day so that your will will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. Give us the right way to think, the right way to live, the right focus of our life. No matter what position in life you have appointed us, whether you have appointed us to be a magistrate to, to govern in righteousness or appointed us to be a housewife to, to clean the dishes unto the glory of God, may we be faithful with what you've appointed to us with the gospel. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.